Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. The city of Chicago spends nearly $2 billion on police a year. That's more than what's spent on all community services, city development, and regulatory departments combined. Activists are calling for some or even all of these funds to be reallocated to other social services. Asha Ransby-Sporn is a Chicago organizer and former national organizing co-chair for Black Youth Project 100, and I spoke to her about what defunding the police means to activists here in Chicago. The call to defund the police is literal. You know, you said it in the intro, the Chicago Police Department's budget is almost $2 billion and over $4 million every day. And, you know, at almost every turn organizers and movements in Chicago get told there's not money for the things that our communities need. There's not money for public schools. There's not money for mental health clinics or for housing or these different things. But, you know, we see that the the city consistently is able to fund and add things to the amount of just resources and power that the police have. And so the call to defund the police is about saying, actually, this is a violent institution that is also racist and harming our communities. And so we want less of that. And um, it's actually not true when you say that there's not money for the things that our communities actually need. What it is, is a choice to prioritize policing Black folks, policing poor folks, policing marginalized communities over actually funding and resourcing them with, with what we need. We spoke with Mayor Lightfoot on the show earlier this week, and here's some of what she said about her views on the matter. Reform is fundamental if we do it right. You know, bringing community members into the police academy to teach courses on their communities, the history of Chicago, but also to talk about the pain that they've endured and suffered at the hands of the police, that's pretty transformative stuff. Um, So I think that um, we have an opportunity in this moment to turn the pain that people are experiencing into transformative opportunities to really rethink what public safety should look like in communities across Chicago. So Mayor Lightfoot is calling for reform of CPD. I know that you and many other activists are advocating for police abolition or completely doing away with the department. But what do you make of her stance that reform alone will get the job done? I certainly disagree with that. I think that the police have too much power and have been and resourcing them has been over prioritized. And, you know, like I said, the the city just keeps investing in this violent and racist institution. And I think an abolitionist perspective, you know, many of myself and other folks who've been um, leading some of the recent protests and also this work, you know, for the past several years uh, identifies abolitionists. We don't believe that police and prisons and, you know, people with guns who threaten to do violent things if we don't do what they say and can do that with impunity, we don't feel like those things keep us safe. And so what we want to see is investment in the things that do and and new ways of being that really affirm our humanity and, and support communities and being whole and having the things that they need. And so, yes, there are many reforms that can can happen on the along the way to abolition. But I think the lens offers us is that those reforms have to be actually chipping away at the power and the, the chokehold over our communities that the police have. So what Mayor Lightfoot described as transformative is, is certainly not transformative. 
you know, referencing the police academy, that's another over $100 million, you know, that's being allocated to go into further entrenching the same system of policing that has has not been keeping, keeping us safe. And so some workshops and trainings are just not going to cut it. And so we would rather see that reallocated towards the, the things that our communities have been asking for and, and, and that we know that they need. I think when yeah. people hear about here, you know, we, we want to abolish the police, it's, it's a difficult concept to, to truly understand, to understand what that would look like in practice. Is there a model for this somewhere that, that can help us better understand a framework and, and what it would look like in practice? I get that abolition may sound, you know, out there radical. And we see it as a part of the the same legacy of the movement to abolish um, slavery that happened, right? And people were told at that point in time that that was something that would be impossible to do. Just like we are, you know, we get told about about police and prison abolition, you know, and we saw just the other day, right, the Minneapolis City Council voted to disband their police department and start something new. I think that Sometimes we get caught up in like trying to redesign what a different type of police would look like, but that's really not the point. The point is that communities are safer when we dedicate resources towards things like education, like community programs, like mental health and other health services. When people have housing and the other basic necessities that they need, those are actually the things that keep us safe. And when problems arise, the communities that we're a part of, if we have strong relationships and value systems, are the best places for us to be holding one another accountable and solving problems. And that doesn't require a police force. Some Illinois lawmakers have come forward in support of the movement. Here's Illinois State Representative LaShawn Ford of the 8th District, who's been speaking out. This system is broken. We got to tear it down and replace it because taxpayer dollars are being wasted. So again, that was Illinois State Representative LaShawn Ford of the 8th District. And Ford is pushing for legislation that holds bad actors in the police department accountable. Are there any lawmakers or public officials you're seeing as potential partners in this movement? I do think there are some. There's definitely a few city council members now who have been, you know, in some ways allies to the movement. Rosanna Rodriguez, older person of the 33rd Ward, has been in the past few days really vocal about the need to defund the police. And I think that has been you know, heartening to see. And we've seen a lot more people really get behind, yeah, this call to defund and take power away from police. So I think it's good that it's spreading. And I think that it's also important to kind of name and point to that's folks following the leadership of what young Black people have been calling for for a very long time and have been told is unrealistic. But now we're seeing, you know, in, in cities across the country, commitments to actually make that happen. And I hope to see that here in Chicago, too. So, Asha, right now, what are some of the main strategies or tactics being employed to really try to push your agenda forward? So, again, things have been moving, you know, very quickly. And the landscape has changed a lot over just the last week. But I think that people being, you know, out in the streets, protesting, engaging in all kinds of direct action has been instrumental in even bringing this conversation to the forefront of the political discourse, to the forefront of the media, to what communities are talking about. And so I think that, that is really critical and essential and, and more effective than sometimes it gets credit for to even bringing us to this moment. So I think that's a huge part of, of the tactics. You know, definitely I want to see our mayor and our city council and 
city leadership take action on this. And I, I think that the movement will continue to put pressure on them until they do. I think there's also been some really beautiful art interventions across the city. You know, people painting defund the police and Black Lives Matter on their boarded up businesses, seeing banners hung around the city with messages like this and people sharing art that they've made on social media. And those things have been really inspiring. And I think a crucial element in folks seeing possibility beyond policing and what, you know, safety can look like outside of that. I think the art has has played a critical role in, in just inspiring people in that way. So those are some of the strategies and tactics. I think we have to fight for it on, on all the fronts we can. So your clear goal and, and the people you're working with, the goal is to abolish police. But in the absence of that, are there specific reforms you're really pushing for right now? It would be great to see a commitment to reduce the police budget, right? There's so many things that we need in the city and $2 billion towards police is just not one of them. So I would love to see that commitment. There was a long fight to, to try to stop the cop academy from being built. It hasn't been built yet. I would still like to see it not be, you know, we want police out of schools. There's some amazing and powerful young people who are fighting for that and leading that fight. So police out of schools, I think would be a huge win. So those are just just a few of the things that I would would love to see right now. As you try to continue this push, what is sustaining you in this moment? You know, it's being in this work with people who um, are driven by incredibly strong feelings of, of love and just care for our people and a willingness to accept nothing less than a future in which Black people and all oppressed people can be can be liberated and live in a more equitable society, I think. What sustains me is the, the other people in this work and, yeah, just different things that can inspire us to see little glimpses of that future that we're fighting for. That's Asha Ransby Sporn, Chicago organizer and former national organizing co-chair for Black Youth Project 100. Asha, thank you. Thank you. While some activists are looking at how police are funded in this country, others are looking at policing culture and tactics. Once, the face of the police was officer-friendly, who walked his beat and knew everyone in the neighborhood. But over the last few decades, everything from police SUVs to body armor have taken on a more military appearance. And those same advocates say police have become domestic soldiers rather than community-based servants. Ratley Balco is a blogger and columnist for the Washington Post. His writing focuses on civil liberties, the drug war, and the criminal justice system. Balco is author of the book Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Ratley, welcome to Reset. Thanks for having me on. So you write about what's called the warrior cop. Define what you mean by that. Uh, Well, I think over the last uh, generation or so, we've seen a, uh, a shift in policing in the United States um, toward a more kind of soldier-type model of policing. Uh, and we see this both through the equipment that domestic police use. Uh, so we've seen a massive transfer of equipment from the Pentagon, surplus military equipment, to local police departments, um, talking about armored vehicles, tanks, grenade launchers, bayonets, strangely, um, and uh, a variety of other sort of gear that was meant more for use on a battlefield. After September 11th, we saw the Department of Homeland Security started issuing checks to police departments to buy 
this gear new, so they no longer were getting surplus stuff from the Pentagon. Now uh, you've created sort of a whole new industry um, to supply this um, sort of military-grade equipment to police departments uh, in exchange for these checks from Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and so what you see is a much more sort of militaristic look among police departments. Um, you'll see them you know, uh, wearing camouflage a lot more now, even though it may be in conditions where camouflage doesn't even make a whole lot of sense. But then there's a, kind of the flip side to all of that is uh, what you might call a militaristic mindset. And, you know, I think the gear in part drives this when you take a police officer and arm him like a soldier and train him like a soldier and dress him like a soldier. We shouldn't be surprised if he maybe perhaps starts to think of himself as a soldier. Um, but also just kind of a um, general kind of psychological isolation of police as a profession uh, to the point where they kind of see everything in sort of us versus them terms. Um, there's police and their families, and then there's everybody else. Uh, you'll see this if you go to police discussion boards online or policing websites. You'll often see a phrase like, whatever I have to do to get home at night. And it's this idea that police are constantly under attack, that the job is getting increasingly more dangerous. You know, a mindset that tends to look at the people they serve not as citizens with rights, but as, you know, potential combatants, as people that are to be sort of uh, feared. And it's a really unhealthy attitude in domestic policing. Um, in this country, we've, we've long had a firm wall separating the police from the military, uh, with good reason, because a soldier's job is to annihilate a foreign enemy. It's to, to kill people and break things. Uh, a police officer's job is to protect our rights. And that line is big, that wall is sort of crumbling. The line between the two is becoming blurred. It's not a good thing for uh, a free society. Well, let's go back into some of the history of policing in the United States and, and how it evolved to where we are now. I mean, there's more of an understanding of the role law enforcement played in maintaining Jim Crow and systemic racism. Can you unpack that for us a bit? You know, a lot of the police departments in this country uh, began as slave patrols um, before the Civil War. These are kind of roving patrols that their job was to look for escape slaves or suppress any sort of fomenting uh, slave rebellions that might be uh, in the offing. I mean, this was an era when we didn't actually have formal police departments. I mean, you may have had sort of a, a marshal or a sheriff, uh, but the idea of having sort of a whole police force uh, in a county was pretty unheard of. We don't see that until, um, I believe it's like the 1840s or so in New York and a few other East Coast cities. But as we start to get those departments, uh, a lot of these kind of former slave patrols then after the Civil War and during Reconstruction kind of evolved into kind of terrorist-type groups, uh, KKK-type groups that are kind of designed to um, suppress black uh, voting, suppress black citizenship, suppress basically sort of black people uh, in the Reconstruction South. And then that uh, kind of gets rolled over into some of the more formal policing we see today. This, of course, isn't saying that, you know, people who are police officers today are, you know, directly inherited kind of the philosophy of the KKK, but... Um, there is no denying kind of this history of, of where policing in the United States uh, sort of evolved from. As you mentioned, I mean, we see police used throughout the civil rights era to put down protests and suppress dissent. I think the important thing about this is that it doesn't have to be this way. For my book, I interviewed a, a number of police chiefs, both current and former, and in cities that have done a good job of handling protests and preventing them from turning violent, 
um, what you see is a sort of common philosophy of police chiefs who instruct their officers that when it comes to protest, their job is not, you know, to protect the city or to prevent rioting or to sort of keep the protesters in check. Uh, their job is to facilitate the free speech rights, the free expression rights of the protesters. And it's a subtle kind of shift in the motive or the mission of the police, but what it does is sets the officers off on the right foot when it comes to um, policing these protests. Their job is to be sort of on the side of the protesters, to find a way for them to express themselves peacefully. And, you know, what we found is when police, you know, respond to these types of protests at the outset in full riot gear, um, expecting violence, violence becomes sort of inevitable. Radley, when we talk about the militarization of our police force, is it just about equipment or are there ways training has changed as well that adds to this mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think training does matter in the sense that there have been lots of surveys of this and depending on which police department and which survey you look at, um, but police get multiples of hours more training in how to use weapons and how to deploy weapons, how to use deadly force than they do in how to de-escalate a situation and how to, you know, interact with the community in a positive way. And I think that is definitely a factor in all of this. I will say, though, that I also think that sort of simply saying we need to train police better uh, isn't going to get us to where we need to be. Uh, I think we need more fundamental, substantive uh, changes in the way the incentives of police. I think we need change how police interact with each other so that they, instead of sort of this ethos of protecting each other and covering for each other, uh, we can move to an ethos of holding each other accountable and making sure that each officer is uh, responsible for their actions. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, You know, one proposal I've seen that I think on some level makes a lot of sense of it, you know, it would be politically difficult. Uh, But that is to start paying settlements for police brutality lawsuits, settlements and awards, out of police pensions instead of out of the public funds. Um, you know, if police officers knows that every time one of his colleagues, you know, unnecessarily beats someone or, you know, racially profiles someone, that there's a potential that it could harm them personally, that it could come out of the collective, you know, pension fund that they hope to benefit from. Maybe that's the sort of thing that could change the kind of culture and move police more from, again, sort of protecting and covering for one another to one that they're more incentivized to hold one another accountable. Ratley, you've written and been quoted about the book Police Killing of Breonna Taylor. She's a Louisville resident and emergency medical technician. Uh, You're based in Nashville. That's just a couple of hours away from Louisville. Tell us about her story and how her death intersects with your reporting. And so what we saw in Breonna Taylor's case is that we have a violent raid on a home at night. And, you know, in this case, I mean, it wasn't a mistaken raid. The police got the right house. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but, you know, clearly Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, didn't realize that these were police that were trying to break into the home, and he fired a, a warning shot, and the police responded with a, a barrage of bullets that ended up killing um, Brianna Taylor. And I get into this quite a bit in the book. I mean, one of the really, uh, I think, pernicious aspects of police militarization is that we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of and use of SWAT teams to do what used to be sort of routine policing work. It's really a a kind of ratcheting up of the use of force and the level of force that police bring to drug investigations. It used to be that SWAT teams were reserved for emergency situations where someone's life was at risk. So, you know, think of a, a bank robbery or a hostage taking or an active shooter situation. That's when SWAT teams were used. But through the 80s and 90s, we start to see 
police departments across the country, um, including in you know absurdly small towns, forming their own SWAT teams. Uh, in part because they were getting all this free gear uh, from the military, and you know might as well use it. Uh, and in part because policies like civil asset forfeiture enabled them to sort of continue to maintain and pay a SWAT team uh, so long as they could do drug raids that would bring back money that you know would then go back to the police department. And we see just this astronomical rise in the use of SWAT teams to serve drug warrants. And the problem with that is that, you know, these tactics are extraordinarily violent. There's a very low margin for error. And when you're kicking down somebody's door in the middle of the night, you elicit a very primitive response, um, you know, very sort of fight or flight response. And if there's mistaken identity on the part of the people in the house, on the part of the police officers, if anything goes wrong at all, you're inevitably going to get, you know, a tragedy, whether it's a dead police officer or a dead suspect or a dead innocent bystander, um, as was the case in Breonna Taylor. Now, in that case, it wasn't even a SWAT team. These were uh, ununiformed, undercover drug cops who kicked down the door. And, you know, at least with SWAT teams, they tend to be very well trained. Uh, you know, I think it's an unjustified use of force, particularly for somebody who's still under investigation for, you know, a low-level drug crime. But at least they're sort of well trained. Uh, here you've got ununiformed, undercover drug cops kicking down them in the door in the middle of the night, sort of applying all the worst aspects of police militarization, the worst kinds of instincts without any of the accompanying training and professionalism that's supposed to go with it. But to make it even even worse, in the Breonna Taylor case, the drug warrant was illegal. Uh, to get a warrant for a no-knock raid in the United States, the Supreme Court has said that you have to demonstrate that the suspect um, is a danger either to police or to destroy evidence or to flee if the police knock and announce themselves first. And what they did in the Breonna Taylor case is they just sort of used this boilerplate language saying that all drug dealers are a danger to attack police or flee or to destroy evidence. Therefore, we need a no-knock warrant. And the Supreme Court has explicitly ruled that this is not legal. This is not acceptable. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court also uh, has failed to produce any sort of enforcement mechanism for that. And so what we've seen is police departments across the country just sort of routinely violate this rule. They conduct no-knock raids on people who aren't a threat, and they subject people and bystanders and their families to these extraordinarily violent and volatile tactics for relatively low-level crimes. The fact that, in this case, it resulted in an uh, innocent uh, young woman being gunned down uh, while sleeping in her own bed uh, shouldn't surprise us. Um, you know, I've written about too many other similar cases to count. Uh, and they're going to continue until either the Supreme Court starts actually applying this rule or we start holding the police departments and the judges accountable who are failing to enforce it. Well, on one hand, as we're talking about accountability for officers, there are the departments and then there are the police unions that actually negotiate contracts. And here in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that that contract negotiation is going to be very difficult because they recently elected a president of the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge 7, who is vehemently against reform, has spoken out against the consent decree um, that went into place on CPD after a uh, Department of Justice investigation found a pattern in practice of abusive policing, particularly um, against black people. What role do those unions play in this mindset and the militarization that we've seen? 
I mean, it's an enormous role. I mean, police unions, particularly in cities where they tend to be stronger, are massive roadblocks to reform. You know, they want to preserve the system that exists because the system that exists sort of puts police officers basically above the law in a lot of senses. The doctrine of qualified immunity means that uh, police aren't sort of subject to the same liability laws as everyone else. They have extraordinary protections in court. And when it comes to police unions, I mean, the incentives for a police union is to demonstrate their loyalty to their members sort of at any cost. Um, They don't have to worry so much about public relations. They don't have to worry about getting elected. They don't have to worry about being really accountable to anybody other than their members. And so you see things like, you know, the Philadelphia Police Union recently, there's this officer, um, Bologna, who was recently suspended for beating some protesters and threatening some journalists at the protest. And Bologna has an interesting history. He used to head up a narcotics unit that uh, was shaking down bodega owners to the point where they were threatening them, planting evidence, stealing from them. And the journalists who broke the story won a Pulitzer Prize. It's, it's well documented. Bologna was allowed to stay on the force. Uh, he was then head of a, a SWAT team that had accumulated dozens of complaints over the 18 months that he was there. That didn't get him off the force. Now he's accused of, of beating protesters, threatening journalists. And what does the police union do? The police union uh, on Twitter uh, is selling a T-shirt to demonstrate your support for Officer Bologna. I mean, Officer Bologna is one of the worst examples of the excesses of American policing that you could possibly put forward. Uh, and the union is going out of its way to sort of make an example of him as someone to be, you know, sort of martyred and seated. You know, that's an extreme example, but I, I think it's not atypical. Uh, the police unions have uh, really... Um, made reform. I mean, it's hard to overstate just how much influence they have over politicians. Um, You know, Mayor de Blasio in New York ran on a police reform platform and then made a very innocuous comment about his mixed-race son and how he told him to be careful when he was around police. And the union, you know, responded with such vehemence, you know, turning their backs on him when he tried to speak at a funeral for a, a police officer who had been killed. It really shook him to his core, and, and de Blasio since has been pretty deferential to the police. And that kind of overreaction to even the kind of most tepid criticism uh, shows the power of these unions and, and their ability to keep sort of politicians in check. You know, so Ratley, when we listen to the protest, we're hearing calls to defund the police. We're hearing calls to abolish police departments. We're hearing calls for specific reforms. But then you have a union, and I won't say every police union, but there's a real resistance there to actually enact reforms. So are we really in a place where we might see some movement or a shift? I mean, I think we're as close as we've ever been. I mean, I've been covering these issues for 15 years or so now, and um, I don't think I've ever seen the kind of public sentiment and demand for substantive reform than we're seeing right now. I mean, if you look at polling, Polls are overwhelmingly show support for reforming police, overwhelmingly show the public now believes that police are systemically flawed, that there is systematic racism throughout policing in the United States. So I think, you know, if it was ever going to happen, I think we're at a time uh, where it could. A lot of it depends on, you know, pressure on politicians from these protests. And I mean, frankly, a lot of it depends on, and it's unfortunate it has to be this way, but I think it depends on the the sustained interest in this issue from people like me, uh, you know, white people who aren't, you know, as directly affected by these issues as marginalized communities. And I think it, it's going to take 
kind of white people, middle class people, wealthier people who probably have had few, if any, bad interactions with police to continue to empathize with the communities, you know, for whom bad interactions with police are a regular occurrence uh, for, I think, any of this to translate into real substantive reform on a, on a large level. I will say, though, that, you know, Minneapolis sort of scrapping its police department and rebuilding it from scratch is um, remarkable. I mean, I think Camden is the only other major city where that's been attempted, and, and with some success, I might add. So I think definitely we, we have already seen, and we'll probably continue to see, uh, some reforms at the local level. But if we get any real substantive change in the face of American policing, uh, I think it's going to take sustained interest in these issues and pressure um, from people who, who normally aren't affected by them on a day-to-day basis. That's Radley Balco. He's a blogger and columnist for The Washington Post. He focuses on civil liberties, the drug war, and the criminal justice system. He's also author of the book Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Radley, thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that's today's Reset. For the latest on COVID-19 in Chicago and around the world, tune to 91.5 FM or go to WBEZ.org. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and let's talk again soon.